0: But they are who we thought they were, and we let them off the hook. I got baptized at uh, Lake Minnetonka. Uh, I hit a couple backflips. I drive to left field! The most electric movement at target field in years! Playoffs? Don't talk about me. Playoffs? You kidding me? Playoffs? I just hope we can win a game. My swag was having no swag. Hello, and welcome. Another installment of the Minnesota Sports Podcast here on the 28th of September. I'm CJ Baumgartner. Let's dive right into what's going on today in Minnesota sports. And we didn't get a chance to talk about this yesterday. And as we noted yesterday, you can go back on the podcast and listen. We are trying to do these things at least five times a week, so keep listening. We are trying to refresh stuff for you every single day, so keep coming back for it. Um, Let's dive right in. We didn't get a chance to talk about the Gophers yesterday, but holy moly was that game on Saturday bad. That has to be the worst loss for the program since they lost to NDSU back in 2011, and that was when the program was at its lowest point. So you could say, yeah, the team lost. It was bad, but... They were at, like, the lowest point in the program. It was the first year under Jerry Kill. The program was just a mess. It, the team was bad. This is year, what, four of P.J. Fleck? And he had five of P.J. Fleck? And he hasn't been able, and he can't be bowling green? Bowling freaking green? They're not even going to compete in the MAC. This is the worst loss in a decade. This is one of the worst losses in program history. And something needs to change because of it. And I have here in my notes that maybe this is just kind of a fluky, your team didn't prepare right, things didn't go your way, but to get outplayed by a team that you are far superior than, the Gophers offensive line has at least two NFL players on them, and you get pushed around by Bowling Green, none of those Bowling Green players are going into the NFL, or at least going to be your big NFL players, what's going on? I It was just such a deflating, such an embarrassing, such a, you know, I was in, admittedly enough, since we are on the topic of NDSU, I was in Fargo at the time, watching, I was at the Fargo Shields with my brother, we were watching the game on one of the TVs, and honestly, that game was so putrid, it made me want to go buy a Bison jersey. It's so incredibly frustrating, that game, and the fact that they were just so hapless in that game. It's just the worst game I've seen of the Gophers in a very long time against this inferior of an opponent. I've seen disappointing Gopher games before, but they're usually playing Ohio State, Wisconsin, Iowa, all that kind of stuff. This is a team that you should beat 100 times out of 100, and you didn't. So you need to break down why. First off, let's start with the quarterback, Tanner Morgan, who I like personally. I think Tanner, and who is a great dude off the field. His dad going through cancer. His dad just died of cancer last year. He's a great dude. I think he's a really great faith-based dude based on what I've seen of him. I could be wrong, but based on what I've seen, he seems like a great guy off the field. But on the field, he's just so limited. He is your stereotypical game-managing quarterback in the sense of he is just – going to sit there and direct traffic. He is not going to Peyton Manning call a new play at the line because he sees what the defense is doing and he's going to pick them apart. He's going to get up to the line, make sure everybody's set. He's going to control the offense. He's going to go where the play needs you to go. And you know what? There's a lot of value in that. I think Tanner Morgan has been very successful in his career, just doing what needs to be done, getting the job done, not trying to do too much. And that's fine. But the thing is, you didn't even need to do that much against Bowling Green. Tanner Morgan, besides, you know, last week against uh, against Colorado, everything clicked. But Tanner Morgan has not been that impressive so far this season. Only 14 pass attempts against Bowling Green when you're losing in the second half. Granted, you're not losing by that much, but... Just the the lack of trust that your coach has in you when you don't have two NFL wide receivers to throw to. Keep in mind, for most of Tanner Morgan's career, he either had uh a he either had Tyler Johnson or he had Rashad Bateman or he had both. And when you take those two away, his play goes down. Now he hasn't been hapless. He hasn't been completely hapless, but you can tell that the production has gone down drastically. And Tanner Morgan is PJ's guy. He's the guy Fleck recruited coming out of – uh believe Tanner Morgan's from Kentucky. He was the guy he recruited his first commit at Minnesota. He flipped him from Western Michigan, the famous story. He called you know, Tanner Morgan as he was driving up to go register for classes in Kalamazoo and made him turn around and drive to Minneapolis to register for the Gophers. But he – You need to bring in Zach Anikstead a little bit here, or at least that question needs to come to mind. I'm not saying a full bench because one game might not be enough to justify, although he hadn't played really well before. But Anikstead can sling it. He's a bit more of a gunslinger. He's not the game manager Morgan is, and maybe that's what Fleck wants. But you have to take a look at Anikstead in that situation. It's just they can't figure out the quarterback. And I joked about this with Wisconsin. If Wisconsin had a legit quarterback, and you watch this in Wisconsin's game getting destroyed by Notre Dame because they couldn't have a dang quarterback. If Wisconsin had even just like a mid-round NFL draft pick quarterback, not like a guy who's going to go first round, but like a guy who's good enough to get drafted, maybe like the fifth round, fourth round. Maybe like a Kellen Mond in the third, you know, that kind of quarterback. They would instantly be a title contender or at least a playoff contender because they have the pieces around them. The Gophers have similar pieces. They just can't quite figure it out at quarterback either. And enough of beating up on Tanner Morgan, because I think that the true loss falls on the shoulders of the head coach. We can talk about Morgan. We can talk about the offensive line not playing well. The defense played well. I'm not worried about the defense. I want to look at the coaching staff. And more specifically, I want to look at the head man, P.J. Fleck. Because, again, I really like P.J. Fleck. I really think what he's doing with the Govers has done a good job. The program is in a really good spot. So just keep in mind, I'm not calling for PJ to be fired or anything. I'm calling out PJ because I want him to be better. And that's the thing. Sometimes I'll call people out on this podcast. It doesn't necessarily mean I think they're a bad player, a bad coach, a bad person, whatever. Sometimes when you call them out, it's saying you're better than this. Why is this bad? This is unacceptable for the level that you've shown you can do. And for PJ Fleck, this is unacceptable. This is his worst game as head coach of the Golden Gophers. The worst. He's 0 and 18, I think, is the stat. 0 and 18 something when trailing at halftime. You were trailing at halftime by like seven to bowling green. You took the lead in the se- early in the second half. Why why this has to be a stat is astounding. And I also heard that Jerry Kill struggled in that department too. So it's not all on him, but. Just ridiculous. This can't happen. You're a power five coach. You cannot lose to Bowling Green. Why your offensive line looked overwhelmed? Because, again, they have NFL talent offensive linemen there, you know, notably Follow lele, but they also have others. You were unprepared to play on offense. Your defense was fine. They only gave up 14 points. Your offense was putrid. P.J. Fleck, you're an offensive coach. Why is your team so unprepared to play? Were you already thinking about Purdue? Were you looking past your opponent? And if you are, that's not your job as head coach. Your job is to... And P.J. Fleck talks about going 1-0 and in every season. Every week is a new season. And I don't think that's a bad motto. But I think when you preach it around like he does, you definitely set yourself up to get memed like he did. Dan Barrero, I think it was put on Twitter, that they're 0-1 in the Bowling Green season. So, I mean... you. I like P.J. Fleck. I think he's a good head coach. Don't mistake me being upset at the Gophers this week for me thinking P.J. needs to be fired. You know who does need to be fired? The offensive coordinator, Matt Simon. He is a joke. He – and I saw this on Twitter. He was at Stanford, and I believe he was at one other place. And both – BYU. And both times he got there – I think it was BYU at least. Both times he got to those schools – the quarterbacks got worse the offenses got worse and keep in mind Simon was the offensive coordinator last year too when Morgan struggled as well and the entire offense they had uh, I'm blanking on his name but the offensive coordinator or the fill-in because Kirk Siracha left to go to Penn State the quarter or the offensive coordinator that they got to fill in was from the Twin Cities he uh, and this according to Darren Wolfson of KSTP but he's from the Twin Cities loves being down here. Want Like wants, like that job was just perfect to hand him almost like Zimmer. It would have been perfect to just give Stefanski the job instead of going to D Filippo gives it to an outside guy. Cause he has more experience. Maybe, I don't know, but it hasn't worked out. And this is PJ. This is PJ flex. Biggest fault as a coach is his staff. Keep in mind. Uh, he was raw, Rod, Rod Smith jr. Something like that was his first, uh, defensive coordinator remember how bad he was and as soon as he fired him the defense got better and they won like 15 of their next like 20 games or whatever it was yeah he that's a defensive coordinator position that guy's calling the plays he's running the defense you're an offensive-minded head coach keep in mind that matt simon jr the offensive coordinator is the play caller but you get but that one guy had his chance during the Outback Bowl where they had a good offensive game against Auburn and you still don't give him the job. I'm sorry. That's that's incompetence in terms of picking out your staff. It's incompetence. And the fact that he can't pick key members of his staff like that is concerning. Now, do I think that he needs to be fired? No. I've said that again. But Fleck is a good coach. Just remember that. And the loss was terrible and they need to go and they need to beat the crap out of Purdue. Who's three and one on the year. Their only loss was to Cincinnati. I believe, or maybe that was Indiana, but Purdue is three and one on the year. Big 10 West. This is a big game. You need to win on the road. So Fleck is a good coach. This game, they need to get past and they probably will, but the excuses for Fleck are running out because this is his program. All the players, all the staff, they're all handpicked by him. There are no holdovers anymore from the Jerry Kill, Tracy Clays era. Fleck has the facilities. Fleck has the prestige of saying we won an outback bowl game. Fleck has two NFL wide receivers. He has Antoine Winfield Jr. in the NFL. He has the resources, the coaching staff, the money. In terms of, again, money to go like to pay your salary and to do the things you need to do as coach. There are no excuses for losses like these. And I know he says it starts with a head coach and it does. And yeah, you, it's the right thing. You need to take ownership of that. But it's not just my bad will be better next time. It's why did this happen? Why was this bad? And how can you learn from that going forward? And the thing he needs to learn, he needs a new offensive coordinator. And maybe a new quarterback, but I'll I'm more willing to bet it's the offensive coordinator than the quarterback. Alright, well that go first rant took a lot longer than I thought it was going to, but uh, we didn't get a chance to talk about it yesterday because we had a lot of other stuff. Um one thing I will talk about with the Lynx again, um uh, the WNBA needs to have better playoff format. And I know I've heard the argument that TV deals and all that kind of stuff get in the way, but man, you need you can't have single elimination games like that for teams that are, were as seeded as highly as the Lynx were. So on that, I'm going to say it's on the WNBA. The Lynx definitely were the inferior team on Sunday night, but they got to update those playoff systems. I don't know. They got to figure something out. All right, moving on now to the Vikings. Let's talk about them quick here. Is this defense going to be able to turn it around? That's the big question. I know the offense has kind of stolen the show so far this season, and everybody thinks we should be 3-0 if it wasn't for X and Y, and and I get it. I get the gut argument. I don't really like it. I think they deserve to be one and two, honestly. Cause the Cook fumble, yeah, probably shouldn't have been a fumble, but they played bad enough in the first two games that they or the first game that they deserved to lose with all the penalties, with how bad they looked on offense, just uh, you know, discombobulated. The second week. They lost that game, you know, the punt the punt return by DD Westbrook that ended up pushing them back, missed PAT, that missed, you know, like there's more than just one play. So I don't like to I don't like to generally say plays or games come down to one play. Sometimes they do, but very 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 rarely. And even then, you have chances to overcome that. So they're one and two. They deserve to be one and two. But the defense hasn't been talked to, and it has been kind of in spurts, like in the first quarter of the Vikings game when they were down seventeen to seven. Is holy crap! The defense doesn't not feel much better than last year. Now they're better on paper. They're more talented than last year, I I would say, especially on the defensive line. But what have they been able to show for it? They haven't been able to show for. They haven't been able to show much for it. I mean, when you look at the Vikings schedule so or or when you look back at the Vikings schedule so far this season when you look at the first three games that they played and this last week they only gave up 17 points to Seattle but they definitely could have gave up more it felt like Russell Wilson was going to drop 50 on them and grant good job on the Vikings granted they had some good second half adjustments but in the first week you give up 27 points in the second week you give up 34 points And then in the first half of that game, you look like Russell Wilson is going to try and let Russ cook, make that popular again. Uh, What has been going on? Now the lazy thing is Zimmer's washed. Zimmer doesn't know what he's doing. The pieces aren't working. This guy sucks. You know, whatever. And maybe there's truth to that. Maybe as the season goes on, maybe you find out there's more truth to that. But I think the answer is just, This is what happens when you basically assemble a mercenary defense like the Vikings did. Everybody – and the same people, by the way, who are criticizing Zimmer and the defense are the same people all offseason who said, this is the most talented team I've ever seen. This is the – yeah, no. But, like, I wasn't out here saying the defense was going to be lights out. I was saying they're going to be maybe middle of the pack, and they've been that to slightly below average, I think. Um, when you look at their team so far this season. And some of the surprising ones, I thought Rashad Breland was going to be much better than he was, than he has been this season. He has been atrocious. He has a PFF, and I know not everybody likes pro football focus, but it's like fan graphs and baseball reference giving war. It's just a very good cumulative stat that you can use to just give a baseline reading of where a player is at, how well they're playing. It might not be 100% accurate, but at least gives you a ballpark estimate. Out of 100, 100 being the highest, Brashad Breland has a PFF grade of 30. And yeah, he's, I believe it's like he's, uh, when you look at his, when you look at his pro football focus page, he has a couple stats that maybe you look on the outside looking and say, oh, that's not bad. He's tied for eighth with solo tackles but you want to know why he's tied for eighth in solo tackles because he's tied for seventh for most targets. He's getting the ball thrown at him. He has to make tackles because the guy he is covering is catching the ball and receptions allowed. He's tied for first allowing 18 receptions so far this season. And I know pro pro football focus isn't always the best metric. They can be a little bit off, but Man, Brashad Breeland has played bad. The Seahawks, and again, I said this yesterday, I don't know why they didn't pick on him more. They picked on him a ton in the first quarter, and then they just they just stopped. But Brashad Breeland has been bad. He has not been good this season. Um, He's been one of the worst defenders. Patrick Peterson is about a 60. 60 is still below average. 70 is about average. But And Xavier Woods has been in that same ballpark as well, of slightly below average, according to PFF. I think they've... I think Pat pete has been below average. I think Xavier Woods has been fine. But, like, you know what I mean? None of them have been playmakers. None of them have been difference makers. Michael Pierce, he's been good. He's been solid. And sometimes it's hard to tell in the run game, and it's hard to tell the production and all that kind of stuff. He's been fine. He's been a big body up the middle. So has Dalvin Tomlinson. They've both been fine. Richardson, his PFF score is a little underwhelming. But... I'll attribute that more to him being in more of a limited rotational role, but th- all three of them have been fine. But that's the problem is they haven't been great. None of them has been, none of them have been jumping out and making big plays. None of them have been really difference makers so far. Daniil Hunter, he has four sacks already. He's bad. He's fine. Daniil Hunter, the Vikings better start figuring out how they're going to pay for that. Daniil Hunter needs to be locked up immediately uh, by the Vikings. And when you DJ want Stephen Weatherly, they've been non-existent. Everson Griffin has made more of a difference than them. And that tells you something, especially where Everson's at in his career. Eric Kendricks, he's good as always. Harrison Smith, good as always. Barr being out stinks because it brings the production down to the defense. Barr's the one calling plays. Barr's the one in the huddle. He's the one lining everybody up. Nick Vigil has been serviceable, but still not to the level of Barr and if you're the Vikings, you need Bar to be healthy to get your defense at full strength anyways. So that's been something for there. When you look at the secondary, again, we talked about Breland. We talked about Xavier Woods hasn't been that special. We talked about Patrick Peterson hasn't been that great either. None of them have been, besides Breland, none of these defensive additions have been dumpster fires by any stretch of the imagination. But they haven't taken the defense back to that, I'm not going to say 2017 because that was a god-tier defense but to like a 2015, 2016, maybe even like a 2019 level, you know, where they're top 15 to 10, maybe top seven, kind of in that they're, they get to that category. They're in like a B tier. They're, they're above average defense. They're good. They're not blow you away. They're not best in the league, but they, they're serviceable. They have things that make you scared and they just haven't been able to do that. And, That's been the one thing. All their off-season additions, all these things, it hasn't been working out so far. And that begs the question is can they turn it around? I think they're going to get better. How better? I think their seal, I think their floor, let's start with their floor. I think their floor is top 20. I think it's being like a C, C C-minus tier. Like you're like a C-minus to D-plus tier. That's the floor. That's about as low as they can go, and that's where they're at right now. I don't think the defense is going to get worse because Zimmer defenses typically get better as the season goes on. But uh, I, I don't know their ceiling, though. I thought their ceiling could be like maybe top 12. Now I think their ceiling is more like middle of the pack. And maybe with the way the offense is playing, middle of the pack defense is all you need to be able to win 10 games this year. But... That's not what we were sold. We were told all these defensive additions were going to put the Vikings over the top and the defense was going to be back to what it was. And, and you just can't do that with one-year contracts. You can't do that with a mercenary defense at every level. There are mercenary players, maybe not linebacker, but linebacker is just Bar and Kendricks, but Bar is almost a mercenary because he's going to be a free agent after this year. Xavier Woods, Patrick Peterson, Mackenzie Alexander, Brashad Brunlin, they're all on one-year contracts. There's a good chance a lot of them aren't going to be coming back next year. Dalvin Tomlinson's here for another year, but only one more. Michael Pierce is going to be here. So that begs the question. Can they learn how to play together? People forget how good the 2017 defense was, not just because of how talented they were and how good of a head coach Zimmer was in defensive mind, but they were a good team because they played together for years. It had been a defense that had been, the pieces were in place Starting back in 2012, when you look at Harrison Smith, 2013, Xavier Rhodes, 2014, Anthony Barr, and then you look 2015, Eric Kendricks, and then you have guys like Everson Griffin in the mix. Um, Linval Joseph was brought in in 2014. This is something that took years to get together to get this perfect defense It didn't just happen overnight. It didn't happen in one season. And there was no magical one player that pushed them over the top. They were just a good collection of talent that all played well at the right time. And the Vikings just can't do the 2017 defense. It's A, it's just hard to mimic that because that was probably one of the best defenses in franchise history. But just because it's so hard because you're not going to be able to put all these guys together and make them play very well. They haven't played together. It's a communication aspect. It's knowing everybody... It's knowing from a coaching standpoint, knowing how to coach these guys, knowing where to put them in positions to play, teammates on the field, knowing where to go, knowing each other, knowing what they like to do. There were times the Vikings in 2017 could make defensive audibles because they just knew, they didn't even have to say anything. They just looked at each other and were like, yep, you got that, I got that. Let's switch it up. It's just not going to happen. And anybody who thought that it was going to happen was delusional. You're tricking yourself. The Vikings can still be and a serviceable defense. They're not going to be top five. That was unrealistic, but that's clearly out of the ballpark. It's tough to think that they can be top ten. They can be. I think it's a long shot. I don't think they're. I don't think it's 100% attainable. I think the best case scenario, their defense finishes the year like 13th. And if they do, hats off to them. They're probably in the playoffs if the offense doesn't tank. But that's the thing. Can they get better? The Vikings need more time. And the problem is with during the season, you don't really practice a ton because you're, and you're not, you're working on game planning more than anything. You're not working on improving X or Y, which is why the bye week probably is going to be the best measure for if this defense, how big of a step this defense can take. It's going to be the bye week. The bye week of course is uh, after is week seven, after they play the Panthers in Carolina. Now, if they can get to, I said yesterday, if they can get to three and three at that spot, they're sitting pretty. They have a tough part of their schedule coming up because they have, Cowboys, Ravens, Chargers, Packers, 49ers up next, but they can at least get the defense in order and they can at least compete in some of those games. And the bye week will just help because it gives the coaching staff more time to sit down and not have to worry about game planning and just say, okay, what can we do now with this defense? We've seen them playing games. Here's what they do well. Here's what they don't. Let's change it. The Vikings did that in the bye week last season. It worked out. The defense got more productive they didn't get better I would say but they got more productive they found out how to utilize that talent so it's going to be a good marker here about a third of the way through the season um, using that extra time to figure everything out Zim is really good at making second half adjustments he's really good at adjusting his defense as the season goes on and they are more talented than last year and they certainly have about the same amount of time played. Remember, it was a bunch of rookies last year and guys that kind of just were kind of practice squad guys. So really it's not that far off from last year. They can put pieces together to become serviceable right now. They're not though. And it's becoming a liability. They've been playing some offensive teams. They've been playing good quarterbacks this year. Joe Burrow. He's a good, he's not you know, great, but he's a good quarterback. He's looking like he's got some, he can play Kyler Murray. He's a dang good quarterback. Russell Wilson, Hall of Fame quarterback. Baker Mayfield, another good quarterback. You're going to have to figure out how to play him. you got to figure out how to stop him. It's not getting any easier either once you get into that meat of your schedule when it's Herbert, Garoppolo, Rodgers. Uh, I know Big Ben is washed, but still, Big Ben, everything. you got to figure out how to do it. And the last thing I will say, I've spent time ragging on the defense, but I will talk about the offense here. The offense has done very well uh, because they've been utilizing, I believe, the three wide receiver set more. And I think that it's something the Vikings, they've neglected because they like to run the ball. They like the two tight end system. When you had Kyle Rudolph, and especially when you paired him with Irv Smith Jr., it made sense. Now, I think when you look at the way the Vikings have it set up, Irv Smith being out sucks. He's a great player for for the Vikings. Him being out is not good. They would be more successful with Irv Smith. But what it does is it allows the Vikings to get a little bit more creative. Sometimes, and you'll hear people say this all the time, the best way to grow is to get uncomfortable, is to step outside of your comfort zone, try something new, and you grow and you become better for it. And that, I think, is what the Vikings are doing with the three wide receiver set. K.J. Osborne has proven to be a solid wide receiver three. He has. D.D. Westbrook can play a little bit. He hasn't gotten the opportunity, though, because K.J. Osborne had a good training camp and has had a great first three weeks of the season. He can play. I don't think he can be a top wide receiver, but he can definitely be a number three. He can be a guy you just send. They cover Diggs and or Thielen and Jefferson, I should say, and they and then he just sits and takes advantage of the soft parts of the defense. So imagine if they have the three wide receivers and or Smith comes back. That's another pass catching option. Tyler Conklin has done well. He's been open. But imagine now you have Tyler Conklin with the the guy who's as physically gifted as Irv Smith. They're going to be better if they can figure out a way to work it next season. They can still do the two tight end mix. They can still do the sets that they want. But even if they just embrace the wide receiver three, just more than they had been previously to this season, they would be so much better off. And I think hopefully Clint Kubiak picks up on that and tries to advocate for that. Because Kirk has had tunnel vision for Thielen in the past. But if you game plan a a set, if you game plan for three wide receivers, Kirk will go to the game plan. He follows the play to a T, for better or worse. And if you set him up like that, he can spread the ball around. He spread the ball around to uh, to Thielen, Jefferson, uh, to Conklin, to Osborne, to Madison. He'll spread it around. If the options are there, if you draw it up for him to do that, and if they do, he'll have an opportunity to make some plays. And this is the last thing, because you need him to spread the ball around, because when Diggs was here, it'd be the Diggs-Thielen tunnel vision. Teams found out that, like, oh, the Vikings don't have a third wide receiver. That was back when Laquan Treadwell was, like, wide receiver three. Is, uh, hmm, well, let's have two high safeties. Let's have a guy go man-to-man on both Diggs and Thielen, And then we're going to have a safety just be over top of each of them. So that way they're always double covered. And now it's just a lot harder to get them the ball. And we just don't think any of your other guys can beat you. Now you have some guys who can at least make some plays with KJ Osborne, with Tyler Conklin. If D.D. Westbrook gets in the mix, maybe he does. They have some options here. They have some stuff. And the Vikings need to lean into that. I said yesterday, they need to lean into being that offensive team. Because right now the defense, as we just said, They're not doing it. Step into the offensive part. Just even if it's just you only even if you just have to embrace it until the bye week, just do it. Don't try and be this defensive minded team that runs the football. You're not that right now. And the faster you admit that, the faster you can utilize this offense that you have. All right. Moving on now to the Minnesota Twins here. Um, Can the Twins pick up where they were or can the Twins pick up the pieces, I should say, from this year? Because this season is a mess. The window is broken. The championship window got a baseball bat chucked into it, thrown back out, and then the guy grabbed the baseball bat and started to proceed to beat the pieces of glass that were still inside the window. So now they have to pick up the pieces and try and see how quick it's going to take them to put that window back together again. I think it's not going to be as long as the last rebuild was. I think at worst it's maybe a year or two. But if they want to put it together for next season, that's also a possibility. I'm, I very much hope for that. As, you know, somebody who watches the Twins a lot, I want to see them play competitive baseball. I want to see them compete in 2022. So pitching has been the thing. Offensively, they strike out too much, but they still score runs. They still hit home runs. They're productive. Pitching. Pitching, 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 pitching. The one thing Twins fans have just hated to talk about because they just can't get it right. Falvey and Levine. Coming from Cleveland and Texas, two teams that at the time of the hire were known for their ability to just turn uh, sprinkle dust on pitchers and turn them into to big strikeout machines. Haven't been able to figure it out so far. Granted, they're still trying to turn the farm system over, but but they have a they have some pieces. They do. Bailey Ober, he's pitched well this season. Jax looks like a solid bullpen arm, and the reason I say Jax is a solid bullpen arm, and that's not necessarily an indictment on how good I think Griffin Jax has been, it's more been just, I don't think Griffin Jax has played that well at all this season, and I think that he's going to get relegated to the bullpen because he just can't start, he can't throw multiple innings. Because he gets that second time, that third time around the order, they start teeing off on him. And the, what's worse is the ball goes over the fence, which is something that has just plagued Griffin Jacks throughout his young career so far this season. He gives up the home run ball too much to be a starter and maybe even too much to be a major league pitcher. But you you have to move him to the bullpen. There's no way Griffin Jacks is starting for the Minnesota Twins in 2022. But Bailey Ober has pitched very well this season. If you look at his stats here, uh, over the course of this season, he has a 4.19 ERA, respectable. That's like a solid number three or four starter ERA. He has 92 innings pitched. And of course, the Twins have been very cautious with his innings, given up on uh, 43 runs and struck out 96. So he's averaging over a strikeout an inning and he has a whip of one two, of 1.2. When you look at his last seven games, he has a 3.6 ERA with in 34 and two-thirds innings pitch with a whip of 104 and 34 strikeouts. So again, still averaging that strikeout per inning. Ober won't be an ace. He definitely won't be. He won't be a number two starter. But can he be, is his peak a solid number three starter on a good team? Yeah. Is that bad? Not at all. Guys make solid careers doing that. Bailey Ober can be an arm for this team. I'm convinced of it. The more I've watched him, the more I've just kind of seen him pitch, the more I think that, yeah, this 12th round pick out of the College of Charleston, yeah, this guy can play. He can. So I, I think that he really can be an asset to this team as a number three starter. I think Joe Ryan has the potential to be an ace or at least a number two starter. I don't think he's there yet. He'll probably, he's probably more of a, again, like a three to four level starter. So you have Ryan, you have Ober, and I'm a big fan of bringing Michael Pineda back. I think the twins are too, based on no inside knowledge, but just kind of gut level feeling. I think the Vikings are, or the twins, excuse me, are very in tune to bringing him back. I think they've liked him over the years. They signed him while he was still injured, just because they wanted him to be developing uh, in their, in their facilities. He got suspended. They still signed him through a two-year extension through 2020 and 2021. Bring back Michael Pineda. Give it, just give it a one-year, prove-it deal. Let him come back. He's familiar with the team. Just keep him. He'll be your number three starter. Have Ryan and Ober go behind. And then you just go out in the market, whether how good they are or not, you get a couple of veteran starting pitchers. You don't have to get the top end of the market, but at least get serviceable starting pitchers. To fill out your rotation, you just need to have a middle of the pack rotation, and your lineup let your lineup do the work. You're still getting Kirilov and Larneck back next year, so you still have the chance to be a very, very potent offense next season. With a middle of the pack pitching staff, you can compete in a crappy division that is the AL Central. Keep in mind, the White Sox have a terrible record against winning teams. They have beaten up on the AL Central, but outside of that, they have not been a strong team. They should have easily won 100 games this year. And they will not. The Twins, when they won 100 games in 2019, the Indians won 90. Or at least got really close. The Indians are barely going to be above 500 this year. If that. The White Sox aren't going to scrape 100 wins. Keep that in mind. The Twins could have easily competed for the division this year. No question about it. They blew it. They absolutely blew it. That rests on Derek Falvey and Thad Levine. They blew it this season. Mistakes that were avoidable, but they can turn it around. The Tigers are going to be better. The Tigers will be better. Cleveland is not going to be better. Cleveland is probably about where they're going to be next year. Detroit's going to be better. Their team has another year to grow, but they are still not going to be good enough. It took the White Sox about three more years where everybody said they're on the door before they finally won the central this year. So they, they can easily compete next year in a bad central division. If they can fix the pitching and it starts with finding out what you have to do uh, with the pieces of your pitching staff here. But I think if you have Ober, Ryan, Joe Ryan and Michael Pineda plus two off season additions, just to make sure, because you have some prospects, you have some of the guys, you have a bunch of pitchers you got at the trade deadline last year. If you just hit a reset button on them, give them more time in the minors this season, give them more time to work with you in the farm system before making their big league debut, let the other guys kind of take their lumps, get some veteran pitching in there just to at least guide the room as well. You have a chance to compete. Last thing here with the twins, and then we'll move on is, uh, Byron Buxton versus Joe Mauer, And it's an interesting thing. Cause I saw this on Twitter today and it's, and I'll put the tweet up. It's by X twins news. He's a good follow on Twitter. Uh, he had a tweet that said, Joe Mauer and Byron Buxton both made their MLB debuts by the age of 21, give or take. Byron is 27. Here's a comparison of their debuts at age 27. Joe Mauer slashed a .327 batting average, .407 on base, .481 slugging with over 1,000 hits, 200 doubles, 80 home run, 81 home runs, 472 RBIs in 836 games played. Flip to the flip side of Byron Buxton. 245 average, 296 on base, 453 slugging. 390 hits, 95 doubles, 67 home runs, 200 RBIs in 487 games played. The home runs, obviously, just in that Maurer wasn't a home run hitter, the era of home runs now that Buxton plays in. Buxton's a better power hitter than Maurer. But... There's a significant gap there. And the point that he made is that people dumped on Maurer's durability and his draft status versus production, all that, and the contract money he was making, which was 23 mil a year. And now a lot of the same people want to re-sign Buxton to that similar money or at least, you know, are in favor of giving him 20 to $25 million, of which I'm in favor of giving it to him. But he makes a really good point, which is, you know, for all the crap you've given Maurer, Buxton isn't even, he hasn't even gotten to the level Maurer's at, and you're wanting to give him Maurer money. Keep in mind, Maurer's only a couple seasons, he's only like three seasons removed from that contract, 19 20, 21 from that contract where he was making 23 mil a year. It's not that out of the ballpark. It's not that inflated yet. So it's just very interesting with that. And obviously Maurer wasn't going to leave. He points that out as well, because Maurer's from Minnesota. Buxton is more likely to leave. Um, But if the Twins, if they want to keep Buxton, they, they need to keep that in mind. And I think they have been. That's why they've been reluctant to give him an extension that doesn't have mega load incentives. And that's also why there's a lot of rumors about him getting traded. But I think if you're making the case, yeah. I think it was less of a critique of Byron Buxton and more of a critique of how Twins fans looked at Maurer in the later years of his contract. And there's a lot of truth to that. And I was one of those people through probably about 2012 to maybe about 2016. And then I started to come around on Maurer and the second half of his career. But Buxton is a guy who hasn't put – now Buxton's more talented than Maurer in terms of the five tool players. Maurer was a sneaky good athlete though. Don't forget, but Maurer also played catcher, which was just more physically demanding than playing center field. But that's the thing too. Everybody talked about Maurer's durability. Buxton has only played half the games and there's a noticeable gap in what he's been able to accomplish. Maurer I think is a better, like pure hitter in terms of like his ability to see the ball, his ability to know what to do with the ball and all that kind of stuff. But Buxton is 100% worth the extension. But let's not pretend that there isn't a lot of questions with him. And the Twins see those questions, by the way. That's why I think Buxton will be traded in the offseason. I think they want to do it to just, they're not going to re-sign him. They don't want to get that risk, especially with this new crop coming up. They'd rather just reload with that crop and give them more pieces. And it feels like the Twins just want to trade him and start fresh because then Maurer gone, or uh, excuse me, uh, Buxton gone, Barrios gone. Some of these uh, pillars of the Terry Ryan rebuild, get them out of here. We want our own guys. If we're going to compete, we want to compete with our guys. And I've been saying that for years, that they wanted to probably slow cook this thing and get rid of those guys and try and win with their own crop of players. The problem was is they just, those that crop of Terry Ryan players was ready to compete. So I think that's just where it stands with the Twins. I think that it's a very interesting argument to have. And that's why I'm so torn on this is because I like Buxton. I want to resign him, but it's such a, it's such a, it's such a dilemma with what you do with him. Especially when, you know, Maurer was maligned for a lot of the critiques that we have for Buxton now. And now we're so gung, ho about doing Buxton? It also goes to show how talented Buxton is when he can play. All right. Let's finish this up here with uh some wolves' talk here, and uh I'm just going to uh touch on this here. Carl Anthony Towns is going to leave if the Timberwolves don't put a serious playoff team together, obviously, but I mean after this season, his openness is fun to see him hear him talk and talk about his struggles with being ripped unfairly by current and former players, his mom's death, his personal Covid battle where he lost fifty pounds. Just being in Minnesota for five years, losing Flip Saunders, the up-and-down nature of the organization, firing of Ryan Saunders, Rosas, everything, Tibbs and Jimmy Butler, are a book in its own. Carl Anthony Towns has been through a lot with this organization, and the loyalty is only going to last as long as there's hope that this team can turn it around. But if the Wolves look like they're still another couple years away from true playoff contention— Carl Anthony Towns is asking out. And maybe that means you have to trade for Simmons. Maybe it does. But the point is that Carl Anthony Towns has been through a lot and you have to put a winning team together or he is going to leave. End of story. All right here. Let's uh finish up this podcast just by saying one more time that Simmons needs Simmons probably is going to be a Minnesota Timberwolf the more I think about it. The more the lack of suitors and just the fact that if a team really wanted to get him, that they probably would have got him by now. The Timberwolves are just going to wait out the market and kind of jump when Philadelphia just needs to dump him. But you might need to trade for Simmons. And that's probably what's going to happen. And maybe that's your best bet of keeping Cat. I still don't want Simmons, but we'll talk more about that tomorrow. All right, that'll do it here for the Minnesota Sports Podcast. Again, we will be back tomorrow with more Minnesota sports coverage. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening to the Minnesota Sports Podcast. You can find us on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. Be sure to leave a five-star review and share the podcast on social media to help spread the word.